Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week we have a special episode. We are interviewing our friend of the podcast, Jamie Bernthal, Agatha Christie scholar and author. And let's just jump right in and get him on the line. Great. We are so excited to welcome Jamie Bernthal to the program. Jamie is a Christie scholar who runs the International Agatha Christie Conference, which is a meeting of Christie scholars and aficionados and fans and just generally anyone who wants to attend uh, who come from around the world to discuss all things Christie, which is where we first met him at the fourth conference in Cambridge, which was two years ago. And you are actually having your fifth conference this September in Southampton. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And we're very excited now to have a whole new committee. Uh, so there are four of us organizing this one. Oh, that's fantastic. If there are any listeners who are interested in attending that conference, where should they go or what's the best way to find more information about that? If you go on Twitter and uh, you can look at my timeline, which is at JC Bontal, or you can go on the hashtag Agatha2019, which is where we talk about the conference. Well, we had an amazing time at the fourth one, so I'm sure the fifth one will be even more fun. And as everyone who listens to this podcast know, we can never get enough of discussing Christy. So the other reason why uh, anyone who listens to this podcast probably recognizes your name is that we reference your book quite a bit, Queering Agatha Christie. But, and this is a bit of a confession here, we've only thus far referenced your book fairly glancingly, I would say, steeped as it is in literature theory, because your book is both a rigorous analysis of existing theory and then a series of original and I would say pretty brilliant arguments that contribute significantly to the ever-growing body of literary theory out there in the world as it applies to Agatha Christie. So this episode is our big opportunity to get down and dirty with some lit theory, get our lit grit (laughs) on, so to speak. (laughs) I suspect, Jamie, it's going to be a, a much less lit theory-oriented discussion than you're used to having, while for us, it will certainly be a, lo- a much more <laughs> lit theory-oriented discussion than what we're used to having on the podcast. So my hope is that we will bridge the gap and meet somewhere in the middle. First off, the part of your book that made me laugh aloud, or LOL, as the kids say, because why wouldn't I want to start there, was when you wrote about how when you tell your friends you're in the middle of writing a book applying queer theory to Agatha Christie, you invariably get two responses. One is poor gay, and two, did you know there's a lesbian couple and a murderer in now? And the real reason I wanted to start there by mentioning that anecdote is that I think a lot of people uninitiated in the world of literary theory, and more specifically queer theory, might assume that applying queer theory to Agatha Christie means something along those lines, i.e. reading the text and looking for clues or codes as to which characters are actually, and I'm using air quotes here, actually gay, or at least not straight, such as Lord Edgeware and his butler and Lord Edgeware dies, Mr. Ellsworthy and Murder is Easy, Mr. Pie and the Moving Finger... We've discussed all of those characters on this podcast already. We have not discussed the Mrs. Hinchcliffe and Murgatroyd yet, since we haven't gotten to a murderer's announced, but that is not at all what you're doing in your book. So I would love it if we could clarify what queer theory means, what it actually is as you're using the term in your book, and I will start us off by quoting you. Queer theory stands for adopting and embracing a position outside and excluded from the dominant norm 
which therefore holds that norm up for interrogation. And I think it's that last clause that's the key one, which therefore holds that norm up for interrogation. So queerness isn't isn't so much about being not straight or more broadly not normal. It's about questioning what is normal and not normal and questioning those very categorizations and the methods we use to make those categorizations. Is that a fair definition or am I completely butchering it? Yeah, that's very normal, I'd say. Um, the other thing that I'd add is that with queer theory, we're able to laugh at the categorizations and the identity labels we have thrust upon us, and we're able to see it all as a little bit silly. That's probably the bit about queer theory that really appeals to me. But, yeah, so I still get people now saying, so, is Paul okay? And did you know about the lesbian couple in the murders announced? And now more often it's, what did you think about all those lesbians in the Miss Marple TV series and things like that? And to be honest, that doesn't interest me so much as using the book as a, a queer person to see what these tell us about identity itself rather than just looking for gay characters. Right. It's such an important point that the questioning is about identity itself and that that's what Christy is so often doing and where we do get that sense of irreverence and playfulness in the text, which honestly is often the first thing to get thrown out when the text is being adapted and I think is, is so important to, to what appeals to her as a writer. And there's so many reasons, I think, why she is as popular as she is and has remained as popular as she is. It's never going to be one thing. But I think that element is so key, and it's one that is often misunderstood. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that if we try to say Christie is popular because she offers escapism or a puzzle or simple English or whatever people say about Christie as the reason she's so popular, well, you can think of a hundred different writers who also do that. I don't think we can ever stop digging and trying to find out what it is that makes Christie so great. And I completely agree with you. Um, Kemper, one of the things that the adaptations often miss out on is that real playfulness, that not taking the world she's writing about seriously at all. And that's what really appeals to me as a, a, a queer person who is not perhaps normal in that sense. Being the world of respectability made completely ridiculous in Christie's books is absolutely brilliant. I've mentioned this author a couple of times on the podcast. I only just made the connection as you were saying this, but I've made a few parallels between Christie and Austin before. And I know, and there's so many people that will just immediately say, what are you talking about? There's nothing similar about what those two authors do. But one of the things I cherish about Austin is that she often does the same thing. I think that the reality, and you could say this, you could probably make this argument about a number of crime writers, but what crime fiction essentially does, right, is break apart the normal universe or the universe as it appears to be, right? The world as it appears to be is a category that we use every week, at least in every novel episode that we cover. And the world as it appears to be also certainly has applications when you're talking about queer theory because what you're essentially doing is breaking apart the normative universe, in this case through a crime, and it's allowing you to examine social structures in a way that I don't think that you necessarily otherwise can, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that 
essentially you're using it as a framework to do what we already do. And so, I mean, it's surprising that more people don't think about it in those terms as an interrogation of the normative, because that is what crime fiction all does. You know, that is how it operates and functions in general. Absolutely. And I think... One of the reasons, well, the main reason I chose to write this about Christie is because she is the best writer ever, and there's no one else that should be written about. But, um, also, <laughs> we agree. But also because uh, she's kind of become known as a very establishment figure, and, you know, people talk about going into London and you see the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace and you see the mousetrap. And... She was a DBE and best-selling author of all time and all that. So, in a way, there isn't really a, a writer who's more established than Agatha Christie. But I think that one of the great strengths in her work is one of the things she's most criticised and that's the use of stereotypes and stock characters and all these recognisable tropes. And I think that's actually insanely brilliant writing. By the end of the book, we found out that this character we've known everything about all along has a big secret. So everything we think we know about these recognisable characters goes out the window. Right. No, I think that that's a very astute point. And I mean, even some of the tropes um, and standard things that we make fun of, I mean, we we always have the running joke on the podcast that if Christy mentions an actor, you should be very wary. <laughs> but, but I mean, all that an actor is doing or serving as here is a little bit of an easy code for what she's doing. Elsewhere, everybody is an actor, right? Oh, yeah. Can I go a bit confessional and talk about my, my childhood? Of course. <laughs> Please. Go for it. So, yeah. so um, Christy was the first grown-up author I ever read, and I used to pose with her books on the bus when I was eight, that kind of thing. And um, what I loved about her was that I, I, I loved the puzzles, but I also loved the characters because they were so recognizable, so apparently respectable, and all so stupid, and it just helped me come to terms with all these grown-ups around me who kept telling me they knew better, and some did and some didn't. And it just helped me realize how ridiculous the world around me was. And as a, a kind of a queer person, and a person who asked questions, as a person who asked questions in school and things, and used to get told to stop spoiling the lesson. Like oh, that. I remember that, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> What shall a teacher read a story about a trip to the moon? And I put my hand up and said, how are they grieving? There's not much oxygen on the moon. And the teacher got really cross. And he told me to stop asking questions. Then I went home and read an Agatha Christie story. And Poirot does similar things. And everyone says, oh, shut up, you're a foreigner. You don't understand what's going on. And then at the end... He wheels out this apparently irrelevant question and proves that it was not only relevant, but the answer to everything. And so this undermined person has his voice at the end of the book and systematically excoriates and dismantles this really respectable social world he's entered into. And then he, he just minces out at the end. I loved that as a child, and maybe I just haven't grown out of it, but I think it's a really basic, really simple, but drastically effective way of undermining middle-class 
elegance. I completely agree. And I mean, I think that Kemper and I also both read Christy very young. And I mean, I think I graduated from Nancy Drew to Agatha Christie, you know, in probably the fourth grade. And I certainly had a similar experience. You know, um, I always like to tell people that for a bit of a goody two-shoes as a kid, I was sent to the principal's office rather frequently. And it was getting in trouble for questioning lessons, you know? And so to have that sort of ability to go to Chrissy and interrogate the world and not just have it not be something to be sent to the principal's office for, but to be encouraged because that's how Poirot, in fact, corrects the world order is by questioning it. I think that's an incredibly valuable thing, especially for a young reader. So many people have contacted us, too, and and let us know that Christy was in some ways their entree into adult reading. And a lot of that has to do with the simplicity of the language. And simple language allows you to access a lot of different things. And I think grapple with some of the issues, whether they be questioning and feeling thwarted that a lot of younger people are are often dealing with. When you talk about one way of reading Christy, there's no reason, you know, no one is saying, well, you should be reading it this way and not this other way. Because people do read Christy in so many different ways, and they're obviously all valid. And she wrote so much and has so many readers that it's pretty much limitless, right? How you can read her, what you can get out of her. And that's part of the fun. That's part of the reason we can talk about her ad nauseum. So I would love to actually talk about Vera Rosikoff <laughs> because and we just talked about her recently and you talk about her at some length in your book. I would say that I personally agree with a lot of what you say in your book about the way that Vera Rosikoff is portrayed in the text, especially in, you know, in those two short stories that we covered in the double clue and the capture of Cerberus. She is very performative. We likened her to Auntie Mame or Hello Dolly. <laughs> you talk about the almost drag-like performance that she's putting on in the text and how different that is, crucially, to the portrayal of Vera Rosikoff and the Poirot-Rosikoff relationship in the Suchet series. The Suchet series is not your cup of tea. It is my cup of tea. I, I think it's Catherine's cup of tea as well. I don't want to speak it to is. Catherine. Okay. No, I, I have. It's, it's hard to have watched something since the time you were a small child and not have overwhelming affection for it, in my case. <laughs> but I absolutely agree with you when we talked about it on the episode that the Suchet series is doing something, to use modern parlance, a lot more basic and, for me, less interesting than what Christy is doing on the page. And I think what she is doing does allow for some really interesting interpretations about gender and the performativity of gender and femininity, etc. But I think that, in general, for me, and this is going to be my attempt to defend the Suchet series, because I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this conversation. I was like, well, why is it that I actually do like the Suchet series as much as I do? Because I have a lot of issues with other adaptations of Christie. And I do think, you know, we were just talking about the irreverence and the playfulness and the sense of ridiculousness of Christie in the text and the horizons that opens up for a reader. And I do think that the Suchet series does capture 
a lot of that irreverence in a general way. I agree with you that their portrayal of Faro as a fairly straightforward hero is, you know, not what we have in the text and is a departure. And everyone says Suchet is exactly Poirot on the page. And he's not. It's definitely an interpretation. But in that every character has their foibles and is both revered and laughed at in different moments in that show, especially in the early seasons, which are by far my favorite, we're always able to both love and laugh at Miss Lemon and Jap and Hastings and Poirot. And it's this idea that, you know, I think somewhere you talk about rather than making fun of a specific stereotype, rather than making fun of a character by way of a stereotype, often what Christie is doing is making fun of stereotyping itself, right? Because she's playing with all these stereotypes. And I feel like the Suchet series does capture some of that. And I, I wonder if you agree or disagree, and I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I definitely agree that it was a much stronger series earlier than later, although some of the later episodes, I mean, I have seen them all, are brilliant. Like, After the Funeral is a fantastic show. David Suchet's his interpretation of Poirot is really, really great. And something he says that Agatha Christie's daughter, Rosalind Hicks, told to him was the audience should be laughing with Poirot, not at him. And he really mm-hmm. took that on board and created a really believable character. And it is a character that a lot of people love. Personally, the series is a little too earnest for me, a little too invested in keeping things the way they were and seeing Britain between the wars as a chocolate box England, which it definitely wasn't. So it's not personally to my taste, but I think it's a really good series, yeah. Although I will never forgive them for the Lord Edward Eyes adaptation because it's such a, a bad adaptation of such a good book. <laughs> Fair enough. One of the other series that you do bring up in your book in which we discuss at great length, especially as we're getting into more Marvel novels, we're now officially in the second half of Christie's Of, so we, we will be covering more and more Marple as we go along. We'll be marpling, as we call it. We've turned her into a verb. Is the ITV Marple series. I actually really appreciated how you clarified what that series is doing wrong. And again, all this is all an opinion, but I really did. I agreed with you 100% because we have this notion, and it's something that even Matthew Pritchard, who, you know, Christie's grandson um, and head of the Christie estate for many years, said when the series first came out, he said that what it was doing was essentially just making homosexual characters more overt. I believe this is what he said. If you read the book carefully, it's all there. So I feel like what he's doing, what the series doing, is what a lot of people would assume queer theory, quote-unquote, is doing, i.e. going through text and labeling anyone who's othered in a particular way. They have long hair, they have a soft voice, they're interested in art collecting, etc., you know, saying those people are gay, or they're at least not straight. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of the point that you make in your book is that by taking certain textual illusions and turning them into various homosexual stereotypes on the screen, obviously gay men who lisp and mince and have strange comings out uh, moments and women who appear mannish, etc. The series is saying this is what it means to deviate from the norm. They're making a sort of black and white case for queerness. Being queer means X. Whereas, as you put it, queer approaches to identity should be harder to pin down. They should be slippery and elastic because that is, in fact, what makes them queer, their ability to escape 
a coherent characterization, and that Christie's texts leave room for that slipperiness and elasticity, whereas the ICV series leaves no room at all. Is that a fair assessment of your critique or one of your critiques of what that series is doing? Yeah, I totally understand why some people think it's a great thing to look for gay characters in the books and then bring them onto the screen as both new gay characters. In fact, there is someone at Agatha Christie Limited whose part of their job is to read the books and look for characters who might be gay. Oh, wow. <laughs> that seems like a little bit like, like hunting for something. I, I don't know how I feel about that. Well, it's certainly a worthy idea behind it. But personally, I find it quite problematic. I think, A, we're building on stereotypes and character types and personality types and labels that we have now, which obviously didn't mean the same thing in the 1920s, 50s, whatever. So that's a bit dodgy. But B, as you said, um, Ken, but this idea that anyone who deviates in any way from whatever this idea of the norm is has to be labelled gay. That suggests to me that gay is A, the only alternative to being normal, and B, weird, wrong, not quite right. So it seems dodgy to me to say that someone like Mr. Pye is definitely gay, and I'm sure you've discussed before um, some of the outrageously camp things they did to that character in the TV thing. Oh my gosh, it's over over the top. Yeah, and it's a negative stereotype, so it seems much more closed and dangerous to me than having the space to interpret these characters in our own way. And actually, in the Moving Finger adaptation, a lot of the characteristics that are given in the book to Jerry, the hero, are mm-hmm. given in the ITV adaptation to Mr. Pye. In the book, it's Jerry who has a, a, an interest in crockery with flowers painted on it and, and things like that. <laughs> and he takes an interest in Megan's clothes and makeup. And in the TV adaptation, that all goes to Mr. Pye. Jerry has quite a disturbing interest in Megan's clothes and makeup in the book. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry is uh, an interesting character because he's um, trying to be a romantic hero and seems to be going about it in quite a dodgy way. As always, in my life, I find the straight people the most dodgy. (laughs) I mean, quite (laughs) often the case in general. Yeah, the level of um, sort of mansplaining and control that Jerry wants to have is... uh, Disconcerting to say the least. You didn't you didn't yeah, find it romantic when he it. ripped her bodily onto a train? Oh yes, I know. It's what every girl wants. <laughs> I would say that in the book that is not necessarily seen as a good thing. But in the T V adaptation, he acts basically the same and is rewarded with a happy ending and he gets the girl. Whereas in the book I think or certainly the way I read the book is it's just another performance. This idea of turning a girl into a woman is quite distasteful, but it's what he thinks he has to do because he's the hero of the story. So I find that a much less problematic thing to uh, experience than that absolute travesty of the adaptation. We haven't touched on this yet, but since we're talking about Megan's makeovers, et cetera, and, you know, Kemper mentioned Vera Rossikov, you know, you can certainly use the same tools of queer theory to look at the role of women and how women's femininity is portrayed or performed, perhaps. 
So in the capture of Cerberus, you know, you have this overly performative older Vera Rossikov, and then you have her daughter-in-law to be, who the entire clues are basically set up in how she performs her feminine dress, right? That's like one of the crucial clues in the story. And thinking about that also in terms of Megan, who's also described as wearing like shapeless, frumpy clothes. It's interesting always where Christy actually comes down on that and what is actually being said in the story versus what is just simply a clue. This is going to sound awful, but I'm so glad that Agatha Christie is dead because if I met her and found out her views one way or the other, I'm not sure I'd be able to read her books with the same breeze in my heart now. So, well, we do say right that you never meet, you should never meet your heroes. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So, someone like Vera Rossi in Cerberus is very a woman should look like this. She should wear the makeup. She should wear the five feet tall hair or whatever. And, you know, her whole job should be to attract men or whatever. Whether Christie is actually agreeing or not, this brutal assessment of a young woman who wants to, I think, be a scientist or something. Whether Christie agrees or not. Sociologist, right? Sociologist, yeah. I'm getting a mixed up with uh, Judith Hastings in Curtain, who uh, has a very similar thing said to her. And it does make me wonder if Christie is using her own sentiments or not. But either way, she's putting them in the mouth of a palpably unreal character. A character who's so over the top and so silly and dressy and showy and exaggerates her artifice in such a way that can only have the effect of drawing attention to the fact that she's not real, she's too much. And that's why it's so funny that a diminutive, pretty little man like Poirot has to have a, a woman interest. He chooses someone who's so elaborate and over the top that the language being used of Robert Cobb is the same as language that was used of drag queens at the time. Right. It there as a kind of pillory, and we can see how ridiculous a lot of our social mores are. Yeah. No matter where Christy herself lands on it, the important thing is that we have the room within the story and then looking at that in the context of all the other stories that she wrote to kind of come down wherever we want. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's just, there's, there's just the ability to get out of that something real in terms of the, the performativity and whatnot. I actually, I had a, sorry, Catherine, go ahead. No, I was going to say though that the artifice of your Roskov right actually has a parallel in the artifice of Poirot, which is sort of made fun of by Hastings early on in, like, a teasing way, right? But they're tools. It's a tool for Verosikov, too. These sort of camp elements serve as a distraction from what she's actually doing, much as how Poirot's deliberate performative foreignness um, also serves as a distraction from his ability to actually investigate a case. It serves him to his advantage to be thought of often as the outsider or the foreigner and to have essentially costuming reveal or conceal rather his true intentions. So, I mean, I guess in some ways, the frumpy costuming in Cerberus versus Vera Rostov's over-the-top costuming are essentially performing the same task, i.e. they are performance. I often quote Suchet's book, Poirot and Me, his, his sort of memoir of taking on the character, which is, you know, mainly a delightful read because it shows, I think, the care with which he approached the project and he read all of the texts and he certainly did his homework and it shows in the series. But 
when I was looking up for Vera Rosikoff episode, his comments on it, for me, and again, this is my opinion, I think he fell into the trap that so many do when they say, oh, well, Vera Rosikoff is his Irene Adler. She's the woman who got away, and this is a very romantic thing. We're going to make a lot about that in this straightforward romantic way, and I just don't think that's borne out by the text. And I think that even though I believe that, you know, I think there's a lot that Suchet did that is married to the text. You know, he got a lot of those quirks, right? You know, he lifted them from the page. He, I think, got a holistic sense of Poirot that is in many ways accurate, but that was one instance where I felt like he got it wrong, quite frankly, and I and I think you can see that in the Double Clue episode and, and in the way that, that it departs, in which I just didn't find as satisfying or, quite honestly, convincing. I'd agree with that. In uh, Quakerist, in my book, I devote quite a big chunk to um, taking apart that adaptation uh, with the Vera Roscoff character who is this sort of saintly older woman who is just right for Poirot because she needs Poirot to save her and it just seems so annoying and dodgy to me (laughs) because this character is so fun in the books Uh, and not a nice woman. She is a criminal and she's an unrepentant criminal who will happily let Poirot get someone else arrested for her crime. And she's absolutely brilliant, um, a brilliant counterpart to Poirot's attempts to become a conventional detective, throwing uh, Rossikoff into the mix. I'd say she's there to respond to the generic demands for a romantic interest and also for a character like Irene Adler, but she doesn't fulfill those functions conventionally, and that's part of Christie's brilliance again. And then, of course, when the TV series changed its tone and wanted to bring back Roscoff for The Labors of Hercules, they ended up having to create almost a different character for their screen adaptation. And so, in the end, on the TV screen, we have two Roscoffs, a saintly one and a bitter one, neither of whom are this fun, vibrant character in the text. And that does make me wonder, as a, a person observing from a position outside of normality and respectability and straightness, it makes me wonder why don't they want a woman who enjoys herself? Why can there only be a, a jaded, bitter older woman or a lovely, saintly older woman who needs to be saved? So that's one of many reasons I find, as a queer person, the book so much more interesting and useful and exciting than the TV adaptation. I so agree with that. And I think when we reread the story, especially the double clue for that episode, I was struck by how Poirot, one of the things he appreciates about her is almost her sense of humor. I mean, he appreciates her fabulousness. He gets how fabulous and over the top she is. Although, weirdly weirdly enough, even, even Captain Hastings does, which is the funniest part of that story. Right. It's like they're both just bowled over by her and how larger than life she is. It's why I thought of Auntie Mame immediately, just because that's so much of what that character is and is doing to stayed straight men in that in that story, be they boys or men. It's so interesting and it's so fun and you're so right. It's like that character is so much fun and that is what Poirot appreciates about her. The way that she laughs it off when he finally says, well, can you give me back the jewels now? And we just get zero of that in the adaptations. I agree 100% on the criticism. They did not get Vera Roscoff right by any means. Well, it might also be something about the permissivity structure for what women can do, right? In a weird way, I think 
you know, even when they're making those adaptations, you probably still have some greater constraints about how you can portray femininity, especially if it's going to be a romantic interest in some way on screen or on the page. Yeah. When I was reading the passages of your book that actually do have to do with feminine performance and, you know, this idea of constructing femininity in Christie, I had half an idea that I wanted to run by you and see if you think there's anything in it, which is that you discuss at some length the man in the brown suit, which we very appreciate it. It is a favorite of mine and Catherine's. We never miss an opportunity to reference the man in the brown suit whenever we can. So um, we're very excited to be able to do so on this episode. Because the funny, the funny thing about Christie when it comes to female narrators is that we only have two novels, right, that are narrated from a first-person female perspective. And man in the brown suit is one. It's not even fully narrated from a female perspective, but mainly. And then Murder in Mesopotamia, which I treat as a little bit of an outlier in several different ways, but um, you know, a lot of that narrative is also riddled with this kind of self-doubt of Nurse Leatherin as to whether or not she even has the wherewithal to tell the story. But you know, The Man in the Brown Suit is obviously a very early novel, it's her fourth, and then uh, Murder in Mesopotamia, I believe, is 1936, so that's fairly early as well. And it's just interesting that even though she did subsequently write a number of novels, some of them standalone after she got out of the Hastings narration mode, those first-person narratives are from a male perspective. And I was just thinking as you were you were discussing kind of what she's did in The Man in the Brown Suit in terms of feminine performance and then how that was graduating into what she does with Jane Wilkinson. Control yourself, Catherine. Your <laughs> arch nemesis. Your arch nemesis. And even Orlena Stewart in Evil Under the Sun and how these characters, these female characters whose femininity is kind of central to what's happening within the story, they almost seem to get more distant from Christie, which of course allows her, I think, to kind of make more elaborate and sophisticated constructions of femininity in these feminine performances. And I'm wondering if that maybe explains why she didn't really choose to narrate from a female point of view, which many people find curious. Maybe the, the question itself should be questioned, but many people find it curious that she really just chose so rarely to write from a female point of view. So, yeah, I don't know. I was wondering if you thought there was anything in that idea or just if you had any thoughts on that? Well, I think that's a really interesting idea and one that has a lot of mileage. Uh, of course, Christy originally wanted to write as a man, but she took quite a lot of persuading to publish under her own name. And I think she had this idea that a male voice carries more authority. In that sense, she was perhaps a better product of her time, but I completely agree that it has something to do with the lack of agency that women seem to have in her books, which is something that sometimes she's focusing on, sometimes she's not. So in the case of, for example, uh, Dr. King in Appointment with Death, that's a character who seems to have a lot of agency and has a prominent role in the, the novel, but still is constantly referred to as Miss King and has to marry a, a male doctor at the end of the, the story. And so she doesn't really have that much agency at all. Whereas a character like um, Arlena in Evil Under the Sun, it's very clear to us all along, or by the end of the book anyway, it's very clear that this apparently powerful and dangerous woman is nothing of the sort. She is a victim. Poirot calls her a victim eternal and predestined. And what we find out is that she's never really had her own personality all her life, Arlena's personality like Bill Roscoff's actually, and also like Jane Wilkinson's, is constructed by the men around her. So 
when people call her a Jezebel or a harlot or a dangerous woman or the personification of evil, they're actually personifying their own loss or envy or confusion in the body of this woman. And that's something completely typified by the fact that her corpse ends up interchangeable with another woman's corpse. So in many ways, Christie was writing in a world where women didn't have as much agency as they seem to have. And that's still a problem in a lot of areas. And she was reflecting that through her plot, such a clever and effective way to make that message, I think. And it would be so difficult, I think, to make that message as effectively as she does if she was writing from a forthright female point of view. And I think maybe that in some ways explains why that narrator in Murder in Mesopotamia is the most apologetic narrator. I mean, she starts off by saying, a man asked me to write this. It's the only reason I'm writing this. And I'm probably going to do a terrible job of it because I'm not a writer. I'm just a nurse. But here goes. To me, it feels like in The Man in the Brown Suit, that is a novel where she's trying. I mean, and this is a little bit my gloss on a more of an autobiographical read, but perhaps things weren't going super swimmingly in her own life, in her own relationship, and this is a bit of a fantasy, and it's just romance from beginning to end, and infusing a story that is written by its quote-unquote female lead with this fantastical romance is something that works for that story. I just don't think it's something she was ever interested in doing again. No, I agree with that. The Man in the Brown Suit is an extremely experimental novel. Um, She'd just written The Murder on the Links, which is a very Sherlock Holmes-esque story which actually mixed half its plots from Sherlock Holmes. And so it makes sense that she gave the narrative, uh, largely gave it to a, a young woman who earns a living by her pen, if she like, who's just setting out in the world and trying to cart her own place in that world and is appealing constantly. And Anne Bedingfield is constantly appealing to stories about women written by men. Mm-hmm. She watches the perils of Pamela, I think, on the screen, which is obviously a mockery of the perils of Pauline, uh, a story about a young, plucky heroine entirely written by men. There's something very clever there in how Christie does the writing, but I, I think you're right. She, I think it was in the 30s or 40s, she wrote a story from the point of view of Miss Markle. That was actually a, a radio script, which she then read out herself on the radio. It's called Miss Markle Tells a Story. But other than that, and Miss Britannia, and the man in the brown suit and her memoirs, that's all she wrote, yeah. So it is a really interesting thing that maybe someone can look at one day. So I actually wanted to ask you about something I personally really dislike in Christie, which I suspect you really like. And I wanted, <laughs> and I wanted to discuss it so that maybe you can make me feel better about it. <laughs> so one of the things I really personally dislike are the meta moments in Christie when characters say, this is just like a detective novel, or they reference how such and such plot point they've just experienced would work in a detective novel. For me, those moments take me out of the novel to such an extent that the story becomes in real danger of breaking down, i.e. they're kind of more trouble than they're worth for me. I imagine, and I don't think you deal with these meta moments too much in your book. I think you make a couple of references to them, but I would imagine that for you, the idea of being taken out of the story is kind of the point and that she has many ways that she does this, but this is a way of pointing to the fragility of the world that she's creating, these various stereotypes. It's a way for a reader to question exactly what's happening. It's actually very modern, right? It's a, it's a meta moment. This is not something that, again, Christy gets a lot of credit for 
doing, but I just the only other reason why I also I have issues with them is that I so think you that they don't you don't lot. like that Poirot exists within the Christie universe, <laughs> or like when the boy in the body in the library asks. For you know, yeah. mentions all the signatures of authors he has, including Agatha Christie. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't. <laughs> and I actually, this is a super unscientific study, so it might be totally wrong. But I think that she does it a lot in her thrillers, even more so than in the puzzle mysteries. And for me, what they feel like, and I know this is just my opinion, is a lack of confidence <laughs> in the robustness of the world that she's creating. I.e., I know this sounds sort of fake, so I'm just going to hang a lantern on it, so to speak. I'm just going to point that out there, and then let's just move on, shall we? But I don't know. I would imagine that you perhaps have a different perspective on this, or maybe not. What do you think? I, I, I'm just recovering from the pain you've caused myself. <laughs> 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 you compared Christy earlier to Austin, who absolutely did those misdemeanors. The whole of Northern North Gravity yeah. is entirely, I think, probably the one book that precursors Belgium's Detective Fiction more than any other. You can guess exactly what I'm going to say. Um, I absolutely don't read the books to escape. I read them to see what they're saying about the world around me and about identity and about people and psychologically. And so acknowledging their own artifice is a huge part of that. Um, I, I wouldn't call it lazy. I'd call it absolutely brilliant. It's not like just saying the title of the book at some point in that, that horrible cheap way that gets a laugh when someone in the film, like. my, my, my all-time favorite is I'd like to take his his face off <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, Christy doesn't do anything quite that tacky she uh, acknowledges the fact that it's artificial and actually it, it's not just the boy who has Agatha Christie's autograph in the body in the library the body in the library itself is a cliche in crime fiction. And so that whole book is a parody of the cliches of crime fiction. So I don't think it's fair to throw out that one incident and point out that as a meta moment. I think the whole book is a meta moment and you're never really supposed to think these things are actually happening. But there are other things like in um, Tommy and Cuppence, each one of those stories in Partners in Crime, of course, is a parody of an existing detective and one of those characters they parody is Hercule Poirot. They're reading a Poirot book and decide to mm-hmm. act like Poirot. At the same time, in Tommy and Tuffins' world, Inspector Jack is a real person. Mr. Robinson, who's another one of Poirot's contacts, is a real person. And so there's a sense in which these books are always definitely acknowledging the fact that they're not real, I think. Well, and I mean, I think um, that Kemper, like, against your point also, you would a little bit have to just completely discount the character of Ariadne Oliver if you're going to make that argument, because all Ariadne Oliver is is hanging a lantern. <laughs> this is true. I, I'm not joking that I asked the question, because I knew that you would have, both of you, have good points to defend why I'm wrong, and I want to be wrong, because it's one of the few things that Christy does consistently that I don't love. The only thing I would say to counter what you just said, Jamie, is that for how I read Northanger Abbey, for example, the text itself is a send-up, is a spoof. And you're right. The Body in the Library is probably the worst novel to reference to bolster my argument because I think you would probably say you could read all of her novels this way, but that one certainly we have lots of both textual and kind of super textual support. I mean, Christy herself in her preface said that this is a spoof. 
for why that novel is very Northanger Abbeyish in that way. I, some of those moments to me, though, just stick out in some of the other novels, and I do not have any specific examples. You know, the thing about Northanger Abbey is, yes, it's a spoof on the gothic romance, but also what it is, it's a commentary about readers, right? That's essentially mm-hmm. uh, what Northanger Abbey is doing. And so I think that if you look at that, especially in terms of like the Tommy and Tuppence partners in crime stories, part of why they're charming and part of why the meta references are charming is Tommy and Tuppence don't know what they're doing. They have no clue what they're doing. They're literally just, you know, aggressive readers who kind of got thrown into this. So part of how they're going about their detective agency or their fake detective agency is by mimicking how you would act if you were an avid reader. And I think that that's far far from being being something that you should ignore. I think that it's charming, and I think that it's an interesting commentary. Yeah, I agree. Fair enough. So I actually, I had one other question on adaptations for you, Jamie, and we haven't aired this episode yet, but we did a special episode on the ABC Murders adaptation that came out recently, and it kind of opened up a broader discussion of the quote-unquote new BBC adaptations that have been happening in the last couple of years you know, starting with And Then There Were None and The Witness for the Prosecution. We did not watch Ordeal by Innocence since we haven't covered Actually, Catherine did. I did not because we haven't covered it yet. And I just want the story to be as fresh as possible when we do cover it. But um, I know that these Sarah Phelps adaptations have caused a stir among fans of Christie, which is great. It's led to a lot of discussions. There's a lot that we actually really like about what she's doing in these adaptations. There's one thing in particular that I'm curious to see where you come down on it, in which I find a little bit questionable, that came out of something that Phelps said in an interview when she was doing press for the ABC murders. And here's what it is specifically. I'm quoting Phelps here. She might not have written any sex or swearing and drug taking and whatever, but I'm sure she would have if she could. And she was making the larger point that a lot of the elements that some fans of Christie are seeing in her adaptations you know, the darker kind of things that go on in the world are 100% there in the text if you're going to look for them. And I think that there is an argument to be made that this is very similar logic to what Matthew Pritchard was using when he said that the ITV series was simply making homosexuality more overt, i.e., we know these elements are hidden in there, And now that we have the wherewithal in our enlightened times to bring them out, we're going to shout them from the rooftops. So if I had to encapsulate what my issue was, specifically with the ABC murders, let's not talk about any of the other adaptations. I have no issue with even any of the changes that she made in there or some of the darker elements that she decided to dwell on. For me, it feels a little bit like perhaps what the ITV series was doing with gayness, or I guess you could say queerness, even though they were lighting it in such a black and white way, in that there's a shouty element to, for example, xenophobia, whereas in the text, it is very much dealt with. I mean, we have Franz Asher, who's this deeply flawed character. He's abusive. He's alcoholic. But he's totally unfairly scapegoated. It's a Poirot novel. We always know that Poirot is a foreigner himself. It is 100% there in the text. And I remember after reading the text for the podcast, I came away with it feeling like, wow, Christy's saying a lot of really interesting things about xenophobia in here, much more so than she does in a lot of other books. That's really interesting. I don't know if I came uh, if I came away from the self-satisfaction feeling like that because such a big deal was made of it, for example. And 
I'm just wondering where you come down on that, because my sense from, honestly, your tweets and whatnot is that you're a huge fan of the self-adaptation. So I'm wondering if you agree with that or, or disagree or just what you think about that point. Yeah, I agree and disagree with Sarah Phelps when she says that Agatha Christie would have written about this stuff if she could. I mean, don't forget that Agatha Christie was writing in the 60s and 70s when people were writing a lot about sex and drugs and all that kind of stuff. And when asked why she didn't put sadism and drugs and violence and all that sort of thing in her books, she said, well, it just sounds rather boring to go through it all like a catalogue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Such a brilliant response. But at the same time, it can lead the ABC murders and see that she's got her finger on the pulse of what's going on in the world or in the country at that crucial moment. What I think is good is that Sarah Phelps has drawn out these elements in the books that haven't been drawn out in other adaptations. The ITV version of the ABC murders really did make it look like England in 1936 was this glorious place where everything was black and white and, you know, the only racism we got was people calling Poirot a funny little Frenchman and there was nothing worse or less benevolent than that. Whereas Phelps points out that there is, there is other stuff going on in this text and so she draws that out in a way that is nothing like in the book. Of course it's not, but if I want the book, I will read the book. Um, I just find a sort of socially tuned-in adaptation a little more refreshing than a conservative adaptation, but both are completely valid. I also obviously like the ABC murders because I did it. <laughs> yes, that's right. Jamie, is, where, where are you? Where do you appear again so that people can freeze frame on their, their Amazon video? And at least if they're in the U.S., that's where it's uh, distributed to see you. I have the um, extreme starring role of Elkie Man in the background on the train at the end of episode two. <laughs> <laughs> I got to stand next to John Markovich for about three hours. It's great fun. <laughs> I have like a little bit of a lightning round of fairly simple questions that we wanted to ask you. What is the first Christie that you read? Um, my mom helped me read Curtain first. Wait, what was the what, what was the book that you read with your mom? Curtain. Oh, Curtain. And then I read Lord Edgeware Dies by myself. That was the first book I read completely by myself. Got it. You know, Catherine still hasn't read Curtain. Oh, no. Obviously, I know what happens. I just, like, I never, <laughs> it was, I, mean, I never wanted it to end when I was a kid. And so, like, I, <laughs> I know, I, I had plowed through all of them in, like, you know, maybe a year or two. I just, like, voraciously read them and I didn't want it to end. And if I read Curtain, I felt like it was going to end. I have a lot of friends who are in the same position. Um, who will not read Curtain. They will reread any of the other books, but they will not read Curtain because they don't want Poirot to go. Right. So no, I completely how I feel. It's, it's really stupidly sentimental, yeah. but... They're, they're part of our lives. It's true. That's absolutely true. Do you have a favorite, Christy? It changes like the weather, or it just changes a lot these days. But always up there will be a number of none, obviously. And I'm afraid, too, that you don't like. Lord Edgeway Dies and Cards on the Table, probably two of my absolute favorites. Well, I like Cards on the Table. I just happen to think Jane Wilkinson is my personal nemesis, so. I think Catherine was so seduced by Jane Wilkinson's performance. She was so taken in. She was so duped by everything that she just, she just can't forgive her. She's basically embarrassed. 
She's embarrassed for herself. <laughs> and it speaks to the power of the text. I love Lord Edward Dies, actually. Lord Edward Dies would be ranked higher if I could have my way. And I, th- I actually think we both really like cards on the table, actually. It's such a divisive Christie, though. It's almost like a litmus test. There are certain Christie readers that loathe it and certain Christie readers that love it. In the novel, Ariadne Oliver is talking about how difficult it is to construct a mystery novel. And I think you actually reference this in your book, Jamie, and it's just a difference of opinion. But you say it, it's almost ironic because that novel is so well-structured. But I actually find that the last yeah. quarter of that novel sags. Or to me, it feels like it's coming apart at the seams and she is sputtering to the finish line and she gets there. But it's getting a little dicey or dodgy, as you would say, toward the end. That's an opinion you obviously disagree with. But, yeah. I, I would describe it as a parody of books that get dicey and dodgy as they rush towards the finish line and have to have a new death escape and everything. I would suggest that Christy knows exactly what she's doing there in a way that writers like Edgar Wallace, who did bash out their books, maybe weren't quite so self-conscious about. I think the whole climax of Cards on the Table is just this brilliantly stage-managed work of artifice. It is as expertly choreographed as any game of bridge. And it's so beautifully done. Okay, gun to the head. That would be the gunman, of course, who has his gun to your head. Poirot or Marple? I think I've just been shot. (laughs) Fair enough. I knew, I I was like, he's not going to answer that question. And I'm curious, because we haven't really talked, well, we did actually talk about them a little bit. We mentioned Tommy and Tuppence, but among the, I'll call them the lesser detectives, let's just say they're lesser only in that she didn't write as much material featuring them. But do you have a favorite among Tommy and Tuppence and Parker Pine and the Mr. Quinn, Mr. Satterthwaite pairing? I love them all as a queer person. I love Quinn and Satterthwaite. Yeah. yeah. I thought you might, and I was pretty sure you wouldn't say Parker Pine, which is, and that actually captured anything. I think Parker Pine is your true nemesis. The Jane Wilkinson thing is a joke, right? But, I mean, Parker Pine, like, I legitimately don't like a lot of those stories. I like Parker Pine stories. I think they're, they're very good. I yeah. like talking yeah. about them. I find Parker Pine to be <laughs> deeply problematic and unethical as an actor. Oh, why? Because if you actually look, I mean, we're just now covering the ones that are closer to actual detective stories, but the first chunk of those Parker Pine investigate stories are mostly Parker Pine setting up essentially scams and, I mean, using levels of unethical emotional manipulation in ways that I think are problematic. And because they're short stories, the most problematic elements of them are really never touched upon. You're supposed to just read through them. I don't actually even know what you're supposed to think at the end, other than, gosh, that's horrifying. But isn't Miss Marple even more of an arch manipulator? Well, you know, this is the running joke that I got pilloried for by certain readers for, or listeners, rather, for a while about my dark Marple theory, <laughs> which, again, we were saying as a joke, I love Miss Marple. But, yeah, Miss Marple is an incredible manipulator. The dark Marple thing is a joke, but at the same time, it's kind of not a joke. She essentially doesn't have a lot of faith in humanity. It's why she's so good at being a detective. She can assess a situation with an astonishingly clear view of what humanity does to itself. 
Yeah, she doesn't get invested in any of the people around her. She has a complete ruthless drive to her, Miss Marple. I have a reputation for not liking Miss Marple. And that's not true. It's just I think she's a horrible person. But that doesn't mean I don't love she's dark marple i mean this is what i've been saying all along and that was never to say that i didn't like her or wasn't fascinated by what she does yeah. it's to say that how she operates as a detective and her outlook on humanity is incredibly dark you have at least one acolyte for the dark marple <laughs> I think that what drives a lot of the Marple stories and very much the Parker Pine stories, sometimes in more of a bald-faced way, is cynicism. It's just cynicism. There's nothing taking the edge off of how deeply, darkly cynical she is as to what makes people tick and why they do what they do and how, not even awful, but just how ridiculous and silly that people are. And um, I think you get that in the Parker Pine stories, too. And some of it is, is the short story form, which, Catherine, you just mentioned. I think it's like we almost don't get enough space to process <laughs> the horror as we do in the Marple novels. And the Marple short stories, they have so much more humor. I think she's able to cut the cynicism just with the character or just like the superficial aspects of the character in a way that she just doesn't do in Parker Pine. I mean, in a way, Parker Pine is the purer form of Marple when it comes to that, well, to sure, that cynicism. Because, well, sure, because to be completely honest, the sweet old lady superficial read of Miss Marple is a kind of drag, right? Yeah. I'd agree with that. How could I want to end on anything except <laughs> having another dark marble acolyte? <laughs> uh, Jamie, we, we wanted to thank you for coming on and giving us your time. It's always a joy to talk Agatha Christie with someone who is similarly obsessed by her as we are. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And just again, let's repeat for listeners interested in the the upcoming Agatha Christie conference where they could go to find out more information. You can go to Twitter and use the hashtag Agatha2019 where you will find lots of posts about it. Happening in September at Solent University in Southampton in England. Well, that was a fantastic conversation with Jamie. So happy to have him join. So happy to have him join. So we are going to be covering Towards Zero in our next episode, our next novel. Very excited. And we should mention that there are technically two film adaptations of this novel. There is this 1995 movie called Innocent Lies, which is not an official adaptation of Towards Zero. No, no, no. In fact, it lost its Christie support. Yes, we will get into how and why that happened in our episode but we will be discussing that adaptation. So we just wanted to flag that. And then there is also an ITV Marple adaptation, which inserts the character of Miss Marple into that novel, as they sometimes did in that series. This is not a Miss Marple novel. It is a superintendent battle novel, a rarity within the of. So we are very excited to cover this one. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at allaboutagatha. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha and our Twitter handle is all about the Dame Catherine's is Brobcat we would urge anyone who hasn't yet done so to leave a rating and review for us uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast to help others find it and we will see you next time bye bye bye